Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. The last several shows dealt with the ethics involved in the beginning of human life as we discuss the intrinsic evil of contraception, abortion, and artificial reproductive technology, as opposed to the life-affirming activities of natural family planning, NAPRO technology, and restorative reproductive medicine. We will now switch back to the ethics involved at the end of life. This imminently involves us as citizens of Massachusetts, as the state legislature once again, we'll be attempting to pass assisted suicide legislation euphemistically referred to as an act relative to end-of-life options. In this context, I will play part one of an interview I had recently with Stephanie Gray Connors, international speaker regarding life issues, and author of the recently published book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life? O God, we pray that you enlighten our political leaders to fulfill their obligation to respect the fundamental rights of the human person, and to avoid the temptation of misguided compassion to pass laws which would end the lives of innocent human beings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Massachusetts is in serious jeopardy of becoming the 12th jurisdiction in the United States to legalize assisted suicide. The soothing soothsayers of assisted suicide use euphemism to cloak their evil intention. They speak of death with dignity, compassion and choices, medical aid in dying, and end-of-life options. But we already have the ethical end-of-life options of hospice and palliative care. 
Suicide is not dignified for the victim or the society that allows it to happen. It is certainly not dignified for a physician, a healer, to become a killer. Choice is an illusion for the poor and marginalized minorities and those with disabilities who will be steered toward suicide by profit-minded insurance companies and deficit-ridden government. True compassion literally means to suffer with rather than end the life of the suffering patient. As American lawyer and author and assisted suicide opponent Wesley J. Smith has said, we must not allow activists to euphemize, then euthanize. No one knows this better than Stephanie Gray Connors, international speaker and graduate of the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada, and a certified healthcare ethicist by the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. As a Canadian citizen now residing in Florida and working on dual citizenship, she is well aware that our cultural cousins to the north continue to slide into the abyss of assisted suicide. Having legalized assisted suicide only five years ago for the terminally ill, Canada now allows even the mentally ill to be euthanized. Here now is part one of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. And before discussing her new book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide, she provides a serendipitous segue from the ethics at the beginning of life to the ethics at the end of life. With me now is Stephanie Gray Connors, She is an author and international speaker who began presenting at the age of 18. She has given more than a thousand pro-life presentations over two decades across North America as well as in Scotland, England, Ireland, Austria, Latvia, Guatemala, Mexico, and Costa Rica. I get tired just reading it. She has spoken um, at many post-secondary institutions such as University of California, Berkeley, Cornell University, and the University of Virginia School of Law. In 2017, Stephanie was a presenter for a series of talks at Google, lecturing at Google headquarters in California. Stephanie's audiences are vast, including medical and law students, churches of various denominations, seminaries, high schools, and conferences. She has spoken at events for YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, just to name a few. 
Stephanie has formally debated abortion advocates such as Princeton philosophy professor Peter Singer, which I just recently viewed myself on, on YouTube, and you can view it also just in the YouTube search bar. Put in Peter Singer and put in Stephanie Gray Connors, and you'll see an excellent debate that recently occurred at Harvard. And I say, and Peter Singer is quite a famous philosopher, some would say infamous, since he is not only pro-abortion, but pro-infanticide in some cases. And despite their differences, it was refreshing to see a, a, a respectful back-and-forth uh, debate with, with good points being made and uh, no one trying to cancel the other, and so it's good to see that such things can still uh, happen in this world. Stephanie has also debated late-term abortionist Dr. Fraser Fellows. She has also debated Dr. Malcolm Potts, the first medical director for International Planned Parenthood Federation. In 2019, Stephanie participated in a historic eight-woman debate on abortion at La Ciudad de la Adias. Not sure if I said that right, but the abbreviation is CDI. And that's similar to TED Talks, which if you don't know, it's not about TED. It's about technology, entertainment, and design, and that's an international forum. And her, the talk that she did was in... Um, Pueblo, Mexico. Stephanie is also the author of Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth, and she is the author of a new book, which is the subject matter of today's conversation, which is called Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. You can learn more about Stephanie at loveunleasheslife.com. So, welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you um, taking the time. You're obviously a very busy lady, and uh, you graciously uh, uh, gave us uh, some time to talk about your new book, which I was very excited about, because we here in Massachusetts are constantly dealing with this issue it goes before the legislature every year, and every year we beat it back, but they get a little bit closer. And so this is a very important uh, time in the country, and particularly in Massachusetts. But before I get to that, I wanted to just mention that I left something out in your introduction, which I actually learned about when we spoke last week, and that is that your family is expanding. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Um, I had the great joy of getting married last year in Phoenix. A dear friend of mine, Bishop Olmstead, presided over the wedding of my husband, Joe, and I. And then we were blessed to get pregnant almost right away afterwards. And we sadly um, miscarried our baby. But then once again, we were blessed with new life. So I'm about halfway through this second pregnancy. Yeah, that's beautiful, and that's that's very exciting. And um, you know, miscarriage is one of those things um, that I've learned as a family physician that a lot of people underappreciate and don't uh, properly empathize with, and that can be, you know, a very a very difficult time in in the life of a couple. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the 
the ways I think I was blessed and prepared in advance of this experience was just through, you know, two decades of pro-life work. I've had many people reach out to me over the years when they were starting to show signs of miscarriage and they would ask my counsel, you know, what should we do? What can we do? You know, and I would always advise them to as much as possible to collect and contain uh, the blood. If it's very early, you might not see a discernible body, but the baby would be somewhere within that. And I would always counsel them to bury whatever they could to have a funeral. And so when that experience actually arrived for my husband and I, I had already thought through this in counseling others. So we actually, even though I was very early at seven weeks, we passed a a discernible, very discernible gestational sac. Mm. So my husband immediately baptized our child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And we have a wonderful priest at our parish who just just gave a beautiful funeral. His homily was so touching. Um, and then we, we buried our, our little child, who we named Leitificat Judah. So mm. I think, you know, having guided others really prepared me for that moment so we could really reverence the child as much as possible. Right. Yeah, that shows a wonderful respect for life, and it reminds me of my own father, who was a surgeon. And mm. uh, at times uh, during an operation... I don't remember all the details, but a woman was experiencing a miscarriage. He was a general surgeon, but back in those days, they kind of took all comers, and uh, she had a miscarriage. And he just had this bloody material, but uh, being a Catholic physician, he baptized what he could see. And, you know, Mm. other people in the operating room... Some of them looked at each other, rolled their eyes, and so forth, but he didn't care about that. He right. he uh, right. he baptized this uh, this uh, little baby, unborn baby, who was unfortunately Beautiful. miscarried. Um, well, then you got pregnant again, and uh, this was kind of a coincidence with a capital C, which is a you know, capital C coincidence when God wishes to remain anonymous. But I mm-hmm. just got through a series of shows talking about uh, NAPRO technology, and you had your own um, uh, experience with this. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, again, being raised in the church, being raised in the pro-life movement and working in it. I was very familiar with NAPRO technology, Creighton Restorative Reproductive Medicine, kind of whatever lingo people use, Uh, but very familiar with it. I've been tracking my cycle for years, and during my husband's and my marriage preparation course, You know, we did the required natural family planning class and met with a a Creighton practitioner. And so I kind of just described my cycles and she's like, wow, looks like you have a textbook body. And I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So so there was this expectation that that my body seemed by all indicators to be working right. And certainly at my age of, of 40, getting pregnant almost right away, and then getting pregnant again right after the miscarriage mm-hmm. was indicative that my body seemed to be working right. Mm-hmm. But um, I had uh, several friends when I got pregnant the second time who were all independent of each other, but in random conversations would say to me, hey, have you thought about checking your progesterone? Or mm-hmm. did you know that low progesterone can lead to miscarriage? And could that have been why you miscarried the yes. first baby? And mm-hmm. at first I was dismissive. I was very familiar with the need for some women to have progesterone and and I said, oh, no, you know, my doctor said he thought our baby was disabled and it stopped growing. And yeah. so he didn't think it was a hormone issue. And um, so I was just like, no, I, I don't need to look into it. But after I think it was about five independent friends mm-hmm. bringing this up to me, I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe I should look into this, yeah. you know. So mm-hmm. 
out of an abundance of caution, I asked my doctor to run just basic blood work to, to check my progesterone. And at where I was in pregnancy at that point, I think it was five weeks, the levels were good. And then I'm just a <laughs> very thorough person. Yep. And so I called them a week later and said, can you run my blood again? I just mm-hmm. want to make sure it's actually increasing. Right. And so they did, even though they said that's not their normal practice, but they were willing to do it. And then I was very alarmed because my blood work at that point came back showing a decrease in yes. progesterone. And mm-hmm. of course, you should be increasing very mm-hmm. much so at the beginning of pregnancy. Right. So my husband and I, you know, immediately got into quick gear using our networks in mm-hmm. the, the pro life Catholic NAPRO world of um, getting connected to a NAPRO doctor who put me on a prescription for progesterone um, until I could find a local NAPRO doctor who I then found. And he's actually been um, monitoring my my levels throughout this pregnancy. I'm 20 weeks now. I'm still taking some progesterone supplementation, although we've been able to to pull back a bit. But Mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful that this exists. And to think that there was a chance we could have lost our child had we not looked into it, and to think that there are so many couples that are ignorant of that, right. and the kind of average physician does not investigate it, which I find very troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, right. you know, the more I think we speak about this and inform people of it, the better, because we can save them a lot of heart. Right, right. And I'm always amazed when I've uh, dealt with this myself, and, and they end up going to see obstetricians, because I don't deliver... Um, babies anymore, but I would refer them, and they would kind of be dismissive and say, oh, no, you don't have to do that. And, and I would always say, what have you got to lose? I mean, this right, is right. this is natural progesterone. What you do have to lose is a baby. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, great to hear that, because I'm up here in Massachusetts, and you're down there in Florida, but there are people mm-hmm. across the world who actually um, are practicing this. And and you mentioned, uh, you had mentioned Dr. Delgado, who we've had on this show sort of indirectly uh, talking about abortion pill reversal, which is another application of uh, progesterone. But uh, so that was very uh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He was, he was one of my first point of contacts because whether you're trying to maintain uh, the pregnancy you very much desired, or whether you're trying to get back the pregnancy you tried to get rid of and That's right. starting the abortion pill. That's right. Progesterone in either of those situations, as has been described to me, means progestate. You know, it That's facilitates right. that the gestation and sustaining of that child. Yep. And so if a woman, you know, has taken that first abortion pill and thinks, Oh my gosh, what did I do? I actually want this child. It's just so incredible that Dr. Delgado has really pioneered yep. um, the use of progesterone to basically undo what the woman had started to do. And of course, the effect of that is then if you have someone like myself or or anyone else whose body is just naturally decreasing exactly. in progesterone, well, you can also take progesterone. Exactly. So yeah, I'm so grateful for what he's done. And um, he was a great help to me initially when, when I was going through my, my situation. Yeah. I like to say that uh, progesterone is the pro-life hormone. And, yes. uh, it's good in a number of uh, uh, cases. But Let's get to the other end of life's spectrum and uh, talk about your book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. So why don't we begin by, I'd like to ask you, uh, in fact, I I shared this with my wife, and and she said to me, 
what, what made her decide to write that now? And I thought, yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have that down. So let me, let me ask you, um, what brought you to write the book now, and what made you choose that particular title? Yeah, great question. So in terms of what prompted it, you know, although I am living in the States now, I am a Canadian, yes. and about mm-hmm. five years ago, assisted suicide was first made legal in Canada, and actually in the past few weeks, it's been expanded now to even include the mentally ill, which is just so distressing and alarming. Um, So over these few years, as it's, you know, the door has been cracked open and now is widening back in my home country, Mm -hmm. I started speaking on it. My my pro-life background has really been in apologetics, teaching people how to give a defense of the pro-life perspective. And, mm-hmm. you know, as when you read my bio, it historically has pertained more to the topic of abortion. But as I started to see this uh, culture of death expanding to the other end of life, I thought, okay, there's a need to apply the same skills I have, mm-hmm. but on this other related topic. And so as I began speaking on the issue, I was getting audience feedback that, the content was very helpful, the arguments were solid, and the packaging was inspiring for such a kind of like a, a heavy, you know, dark and depressing topic. Mm-hmm. Um, several of the stories that I would share were quite moving for people. And so as I was getting all of this confirmation over the years, I thought, well, maybe I should put this in writing. Yeah. You know, maybe what I'm orally communicating could be a blessing to people. And so I I started actually just blogging for a couple years, mm-hmm. and then I thought, I think I have enough written material that I can work with that and yep. and put it into a book. So in January of this year, I, I released this book. And um, the title, you know, I, I, whenever you want to title a talk or title a book, you always want to think, okay, well, what's going to grab people or intrigue yep. people? And yep. there's mystery to the phrase, start with what, because it makes someone say, what do you mean? And, mm-hmm. and I want people to ask the question, because then they're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I came up with that because as I was researching the topic of assisted suicide, which is really tied into suffering, I realize the natural human inclination when we suffer is to ask why. Why me? Why did this happen? You know, why did I get cancer? Why did I get in a car accident? Why am I a quadriplegic? Mm -hmm. And the problem with that question is it doesn't really satisfy us when we come up with an answer. Mm -hmm. And usually it's just simply life is unfair. We live in a broken world. Sin exists, which leads to all kinds of consequences and realities that are negative. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that question that's not satisfying is it's very much oriented to the past, you know, to look for an explanation of what has already occurred. And the thing is, we can't undo the past. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of left in a situation of something that we can't control. And so I started to realize as though we're, you know, inclined to ask why when faced with suffering, what we really should be asking is what. And what I mean by that is, when I suffer, when I face hardship, what amazing, wonderful, incredible thing can I bring out of this terrible, horrible, awful circumstance that I'm in? And the power of that question is the answer is more uplifting. It gives us hope. Uh, Even in difficult circumstances, it can give us a new lease on life and give us a new perspective as to what good can come out of even a terrible situation. And it's future-oriented. It's yes. about what's next, which yes. is actually what we can control. We can't yeah. control the past, but we can control what happens next based on what we do right now. Yes. And so, you know, and as we'll talk more, I share a number of stories that really right. help people focus on what their what right. can be. This concludes Part 1 
of my conversation with Stephanie Gray Connors. Tune in next week for compelling stories regarding the scourge of physician-assisted suicide. Be sure to go to her website, loveunleasheslife.com. That's loveunleasheslife.com. There you can order her book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. You can also read her blog and be informed about her upcoming events on loveunleasheslife.com. Also, please be aware that the 2021 Assisted Suicide Bill is now before the Massachusetts legislature. It is euphemistically called an act relative to end-of-life options. Please call your state representative and state senator today at 617-722-2000. Tell them we already have end-of-life options. They are called hospice and palliative care. Tell them you want your doctor to continue to be a healer and a comforter, not a killer. Again, that's 617-722-2000. Or go to malegislature.gov. Let me conclude by relating to you what Holy Mother Church tells us in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is paragraph 2277. Whatever its motives and means, direct euthanasia consists in putting an end to lives of handicapped, sick, or dying persons. It is morally unacceptable. Thus, an act or omission which of itself or by intention causes death in order to eliminate suffering constitutes a murder gravely contrary to the dignity of the human person and to the respect due to the living God, his creator. The error of judgment into which one can fall in good faith does not change the nature of this murderous act, which must always be forbidden and excluded. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrolo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.